Hello and welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Life Podcast. I am your host, Nashawn Garrett, and we have another beautiful uh, conversation about the truth about God, who he is, uh, his son Jesus, who has died and resurrected and is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. We've been in the, the book um, called, well, it is the book of Romans. And recently we just talked about... Um, Religious people having, they have faith in God, but it's really only the faith and the sacrifice of Jesus that can please God. Nothing else pleases God. Nothing else satisfies him. Um, The wrath of God was satisfied and satiated in the death of Jesus, and our justification was uh, risen up uh, with Jesus. When he rose up from the dead, we were uh, justified. He was raised for our justification. And only by this type of faith, this faith in Jesus, what he does on the cross, only by this faith can a person fulfill the law by putting the old old man to death. And that is what we're reading about in um, Romans, right? That, That there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, right? It wasn't sinful flesh because it wasn't obedient and a master to sin. That is why he says it was in the likeness of sinful flesh. Um, It doesn't mean that he didn't have a body um, or that he was like plasma. No, he was a a man, uh, a man born of God. Uh, He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in you. So, when we do not walk according to the flesh, we fulfill the law. If we walk according to the flesh, we break the law. So, and only faith in him can allow us to uh, have that fulfillment of the law. So, now we're talking on verse 9. We have, we found a, a little place to start where we're talking about having the Holy Spirit. And what does it mean to belong to the Holy Spirit? In verse 9, it says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Some Pentecostals have used this verse to prove that one must have this Pentecostal experience in order to be a true Christian. But the simple look at a true Pentecostal experience through the pattern of the church in the wilderness, that is Israel, when they came out of Egypt, it proves otherwise, guys. The church is a body of called out ones. It is comes from the Greek word ecclesia or um, the Hebrew word kahal, and it means set apart ones or called out ones. When Israel was called out at Egypt at Passover, they became the church in the wilderness, the called out ones in the wilderness. The Israelites were justified by faith through Passover, not Pentecost. You guys understand that? So um, you are justified by faith, not your Pentecostal experience. So there's a Pentecostal level of faith, and then there is a, uh, there's a Passover level of faith, which is what justifies you. Then there's a Pentecostal level of faith in which you are led by the Spirit 
God. So they were led by the Spirit from the day of Passover, not Pentecost. You guys understand that? So as soon as you're justified, you become led by the Spirit. So in Exodus chapter 13, verse 20 through 22, it says, Then they set out from Sukkoth and camped at Ethem on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The Israelites were led by the Spirit, guys, from day one of B-15 Passover. Our justification, which comes through the Passover faith, begins our journey as we are led by the Spirit. Our sanctification comes through Pentecost, and it is another level, an enhanced level of faith, and another and second experience with God. But we have to be careful to distinguish between the two experiences and to understand the importance of each one. Each one is extremely important. So for those of you guys who believe or have been taught maybe, well, brother, you have to speak in tongues or you have to do this. Hey, listen, um, the Pentecostal level experience has nothing to do with speaking. It has everything to do with hearing. Okay. And it's hearing in our obedience that um, fulfills Passover, excuse me, that fulfills Pentecost in us. Uh, Pentecost is a celebration of the giving of the Torah, the Ten Commandments. And it is Pentecost which um, allows us to be sanctified because it's hearing his voice that cleanses us and sanctifies us. Sanctify them in your truth, Jesus said. Your word is truth. And Jesus said his word is spirit and life. All right. So Christ in you is alive and immortal. In verse 10, we read, this is Romans chapter 8, verse 10. And if Christ is in you, though the body of dead is, uh, excuse me, is, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of or with respect to righteousness. In verse 11, we read, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who indwells in you. So Paul distinguishes between the old man and the new man. The old man is sentenced to death, right? It's the carnal man. While the new man is alive with immortality. Verse 11 continues this concept of the internal resurrection where the new man is raised immediately upon the death of the old Adamic flesh man. So as soon as this guy dies, this Adamic flesh man, the new man is raised. And he says that God will also give life to your mortal bodies. And this life that's coming out of you is actually immortality, but it's um, immortality being pushed through your mortal body. And some believe that this means that if we are truly led by the Spirit, then we will never die in our current bodies. They point to the example of Enoch and maybe p perhaps Elijah. And I have met many people who believed that they would never die, but given enough time, they continue to age, and many of those mortal bodies are now decomposing in the ground. And obviously, while we have no doubt that their spirit is alive unto God, um, for we understand that he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, but they, their mortal bodies, have um, been there dead and buried. 
So Paul's use of the phrase, your mortal body, seems to suggest that he wasn't really referring to an immortal spirit or the Christ I. Our Christ identity is not our mortal bodies, even if it is located within it. Certainly, not all shall sleep, quote unquote, but will be changed. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. That is to say, there will be an age where the people who belong in that age, um, when they are changed, they won't die. But um, whether this change is subject to an appointed time in history or subject to only one's personal growth is a matter of for debate. That is to say, there, um, you know, the scriptures tells us very plainly that not all shall sleep. He says this in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse fifty-one. That is, not all um, will have to be put in the ground and buried, and then await for a resurrection. Not all will have to go through that. Um, but in Romans chapter eight, verse twelve through fourteen, we see this. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh. To live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, then you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And of course, as sons of God, uh, they carry the character of God, his nature, his function, and immortality. Paul says as believers, we are under obligation to live by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body. Many like to think that being a Christian means the freedom of having no obligations at all. For any obligation is to them a form of slavery. But as we have seen from the laws of redemption, being redeemed means only that we have changed masters, slave owners. We are still bondservants to Jesus, guys. You still have a master. You still have one that you serve. Furthermore, to live according to the flesh is to live a lawless life, for the flesh does not subject itself to God. So if you have died with him, how can you live to sin? If that, that same man, if you identify with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, and you continue willfully sinning, then how is it that you have identified with him in his death? It seems that there is a lot of misunderstanding here, guys. But it appears to tell us, this verse specifically, that if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body you will live, Paul appears to tell us that sanctification is a requirement for immortal life. So it's not just Passover experience. It's not just, um, you know, believing on Jesus by his blood that um, is the requirement for immortal life. Sanctification is a requirement for immortal life. If that is what it appears to be, then Pentecost has taken the place of Passover and justification is no more by faith alone, but by works, that is obedience to God. I see. So we have to understand, um, just to clarify, in verse 13, we're reading that if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And it appears to show us that sanctification is acquirement. It appears that way. Um, but if that is a, the case, then, uh, then Pentecost is what justifies us and not just faith in what Jesus has done. 
And justification is no longer by faith alone, but also by works. That is obedience to the spirit of God. And we do not believe that because that would clearly contradict Paul's earlier foundation in Romans chapter 4, where he showed very clearly that justification was by faith alone and not by works. So after careful foundations in Romans chapter 4, um, shall we now interpret Paul's statement in Romans chapter 8 in a contradictory manner? That is to say, is sanctification necessary requirement for immortal life? Well, let's see how we can reconcile these statements. There are two main possibilities. The first is this. Paul might be telling us that if we become sufficiently sanctified by putting to death the flesh and by the leading of the spirit, we may walk right into immortality and cease to age and cease to die. The other possibility is that Paul may be referring to sanctification as a prerequisite for achieving life in the first resurrection. And I think we have talked about this before, guys, that not everyone attains to the first resurrection. But I believe um, while sanctification uh, is not what gets us immortal life, it is uh, will get us life in that age. It will get us immortal life first. So if we are being sanctified, um, I believe that it is a prerequisite to achieving life that is immortal life in the first resurrection, whereas everyone else will receive immortality um, after the judgment, um, the great white throne judgment. A third possibility, um, which I believe, is that there might be a little bit of truth to both. So uh, both viewpoints could be completely valid and they're not mutually exclusive. So let's consider the first option. Is it possible to achieve perfect, perfect sanctification if given enough time under Pentecost? Is it necessary to be fully sanctified in order to achieve immortality? Or can immortality be attained by just, you know, 90 to 99% sanctification? Well, the simple answer is this. God has already imputed righteousness to you and to me and to all those who believe in Jesus by faith. Having your sins covered has already given us a just a positional justification and a positional sanctification as far as the law is concerned. So through the eyes of the law, while it may not look like your life is sanctified, while it may not look like you are dead to sin, while it may not look like you are justified, in the eyes of the law, or may not look like that is to say in your life, maybe you still struggle with certain sins or whatever. Um, in the eyes of the law, you have been justified. You have been sanctified. In the eyes of all, you literally look like Jesus. You look like him. And this is the provision for God, of God, for the church, between Egypt and the promised land. This is his provision for you. Now, Israel started their journey on Abib 15, from a place called Sukkoth. And this is seen in Exodus chapter 13, verse 20. Sukkoth means booths, and it represents the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So for those of you guys who don't know the feasts or are still struggling to learn these things, this is a pretty good introduction into um, these uh, feasts, which are very important. Um, these feasts... And I'll specifically just talk about the three feasts, the three primary feasts. Um, you have Passover, you have Pentecost, and you have Tabernacles. 
And um, each of these feasts is has a historical fulfillment, and each of these feasts has a prophetic and spiritual fulfillment. And um, they also have an individual and a corporate fulfillment. And so, um, of course, we know that Passover was fulfilled historically when the people were set free from Egypt. We know that Pentecost was um, historically fulfilled um, when they received the Holy Spirit um, in Acts chapter 2. And tabernacles will also be fulfilled in the age to come, that is, in the Messianic age or during the year of the thousand-year reign. And it represents receiving immortal bodies. That is what it represents. And that historical fulfillment will take some take place sometime now between now and the near future. So Israel. Um, so the historical, well, how the Jews would or how Israel would fulfill booths is they were supposed to set up tents during their entire time in the wilderness. And it was a lesson to the New Testament church that we're not supposed to build denominational houses in the wilderness. We had to understand that um, we were in a time of movement and, and temporary dwellings. It was these booths were supposed to they would build booths out of leaves and out of um, uh, sticks and other things that they had in the wilderness. They would build these booths and they would stay in them for eight days. And it was supposed to reveal to them, hey, you haven't made it to the promised land yet. And they were under they were supposed to understand it was they were in a time of movement and temporary dwelling. They were supposed to continue to learn and grow spiritually through their wilderness experience. A denomination tends to establish a fixed doctrinal house where people settle permanently. They say, well, no, brother, it's only this, and this is how, where I'm going to stay. Well, brother, I'm a Baptist, and it's only baptism, and it's only this, and this is where we stay. Well, brother, I'm a Methodist, and well, it's this method. This is the way that it works, and this is where I'm going to stay. And these denominational houses actually keep people from following um, can keep people from following the leading of the Holy Spirit because they set up permanent houses there instead of realizing that these are booths. Um, and we're not yet at the promised land, but we have to keep on moving forward and being led by the Holy Spirit. A denomination tends to establish a fixed doctrinal house where people settle permanently and are never able to learn the lessons of the next oasis in the desert where the pillar of fire may lead them. So the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, was designed to teach Israel this. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 42 and 44, we see, You shall live in booths for seven days, and all the native-born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. And so... This is one of the reasons why the writer of this book says that they believe that Israel started their journey from Sukkoth, which was their first encampment after leaving Ramesses. It teaches us that we ought to have the goal in mind as we leave the house of bondage and begin our journey to the promised land. And again, this promised land is, um, it's not so much, it's not heaven. That's not the promised land. The promised land is having new earth, guys. It's having new bodies. It's inheriting the land. And of course, land is made from the ground. So it's, and our bodies are made from the dust of the ground. And one of the early church fathers says that our bodies are earth in a suffering state. 
So we have to get a new body. It teaches us that we have to enjoy and that we may enjoy imputed righteousness through our journey. And in that sense, we may live the kingdom life even while we are still in the wilderness. It is plain, however, that the Israelites did not reckon themselves to be living in the kingdom. They grumbled, they complained, and they showed that they did not have the ability to see beyond the circumstances. When they ran out of food, they only saw the empty bread basket. When they ran out of water, they only saw the empty canteen. They had a difficult time seeing the presence of God in times of shortage and adversity. And they didn't understand the authority, even as Moses did, that God had to command water to come out of the rock. They didn't understand these things. Moses came the closest to living the kingdom life as it was supposed to be lived. But even he fell short in the end, though Caleb and Joshua inherited the promise. Now, Caleb and Joshua were the types of overcomers who manifested the third level of faith that comes by living in booths in the wilderness. And even so, they were not allowed to enter the promised land apart from the body or the nation itself. They had to wait for the appointed times. Because this is not only an individual matter, but it is also a corporate body work. Likewise, there have been many overcomers throughout the past ages, including those listed in Hebrews chapter 11. And all of these died without having received the promise though they did gain God's approval. Why? Because in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40, we see that because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So those old overcomers, those people, those men and great men and women of faith who have died without obtaining the promise, they're not going to obtain it without us, and we won't obtain it without them. There will come a time when we will see the fulfillment of these things. And Unfortunately, we have to stop there, guys, but we will see you on our next episode. Blessings and peace to you. We'll see you next episode.